Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. It is women's retreat uh, this weekend. Uh, my wife Amber is there with a bunch of other uh, women. My wife always says that wives and moms should go to the women's retreat because they come back with hero status. And I think that's definitely true because you realize, man, my wife does so much work. Praise the Lord that you're back, right? And so I, I'd like to report that all my kids are alive. They are healthy. I have to be transparent. I did recruit help from the grandparents. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can get into your word this morning. We thank you for the women's retreat. We do pray that you would bless them as they're ending up this morning and just solidify the things that you've been showing them. Pray you give them safe travels on the way home. And Lord, as we're here to study your word this morning, we pray that it would come across clear, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, that you, Jesus, would be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Life lessons. Can you remember some of the things that you have learned that have really impacted you? Here's a, a few life lessons. You can tell a man that there's 300 billion stars in the universe and he will believe you. But if you tell him that there's wet paint on the bench, he'll have to go touch it. Isn't that true? Another life lesson is anything that you lose automatically becomes doubled in value. The moment it's lost, it has now doubled in value. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. This is definitely true. Patience is something you admire in the driver behind you, but not in the one ahead of you. Here's a life lesson from Mark Twain. Be careful about reading health books. You may die of misprint. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the life lessons from King Saul. I've been really excited to get to this point in our study of 1 Samuel because we begin to hone in on the character of Saul. 1 and 2 Samuel really is character studies. We've entitled it Kings and Sons because we will get to study King Saul and also his son, Jonathan. That's then going to transition into David and his son, Absalom. It's hard for us to admit that there's much more of Saul in us than we realize. And as we go through this study and we see Saul begin to compromise, my prayer this morning is that we would learn from his mistakes, that we would learn from his lack of character, that God would speak to us and he would challenge us. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Saul reigned one year, and when he'd reigned two years over Israel. So he's reigned for two years as king over Israel, and up to this point, everything has gone smooth. The Spirit of the Lord is coming upon him. God is using him. People are rallying around behind him, but things are not right in the heart of Saul. Things are not right in the things that you can't see. And that's the case a lot of times in our lives. We keep the exterior of our life together. It looks like everything is okay. We're, we're doing the outward things, but our heart isn't connecting with the Lord. And over time, that's going to show. And when it comes out, usually, is when we get into a pressure situation, the pressure cooker. And Saul's going to come into this place where he has a very tough situation. He's going to get squeezed, and his lack of character comes out. I think that he's planting seeds in his life, seeds of selfishness, seeds of pride, and seeds of arrogance that then develop to thoughts 
that become actions that then define his character. And that's always the case in our lives as well. You're planting something this morning. I'm planting something this morning. And hopefully, it's the things of God. Hopefully, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that then is resulting in the right thoughts, the right action, and the right character. But up until this point, everything's smooth sailing for Saul. In verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. The enemy is the Philistines. The Philistines live in the promised land. Saul chooses to only take 3,000 soldiers. 2,000 go with him, and 1,000 go with his son, Jonathan. Now, studying the Old Testament, Jonathan's one of my favorites. Really take some time to get familiar with the man, Jonathan. He is going to come alongside David to be king when it was his rightful position. You would think very logically that it would go from Saul to Jonathan, but Jonathan saw what God was doing in the life of David, and he was able to get behind David. Not enough can be said about this man, Jonathan. This is the first time in Scripture that we see Jonathan mentioned. So Saul is already getting up in age. He's, he's old enough to have a son who is a warrior who's fighting alongside with him. In verse 3, and Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Jonathan's a man of action. He's a man when he sees the enemy of God. He believes the promises of God. He takes action. So he goes and he fights a garrison of Philistines. But then Saul, he's the one who gets the word out. He's the one who sounds the trumpet to let all of Israel know that there's a battle. Now all of Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. The Philistines saw Israel as an abomination. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Jonathan fights the battle, but who gets the credit in verse 4? Saul gets the credit. And Saul's fine with that. He doesn't stop anybody and say, well, wait a second. God was the one who gave us this victory, and Jonathan was the one who God used. One Bible commentary puts it this way. His own sense of insecurity will not allow any of his associates, even his own son, to receive credit. He needs to drink in the praise like a thirsty man drinks in water. That's pretty sad, isn't it? That Saul can't even allow his own son to receive some credit for hard work and how God had used him. This is gonna become a huge problem in Saul's life. When David comes on the scene, there's this song that starts to hit the charts in Israel. David has killed his 10,000s and Saul has killed his thousands. And that drove Saul mad. It drove him crazy to the point of wanting to kill David. It's pride, it's insecurity. If we live in that place of pride and insecurity, there's never enough attention. There's never enough spotlight. There's never enough praise of men. There, there's never enough. We drink it in like a thirsty man. Verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. Israel is extremely outnumbered. We see that this multitude is as the seashore. 
The idea behind this is if you were to fly over the Denver Broncos stadium last night as they were playing against the 49ers, maybe on the blimp, and you were going to try to count how many people were in the stadium. Impossible. You can't number them. Of course, they can count with the clickers as people come into the stadium, but you couldn't as you were flying over. So as they were looking out at the Philistines, how do you number this mass army? But also, there's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Israel only has farming tools. That's what we'll find out in just a moment later in the chapter. There's only two swords in all of Israel. The Philistines, under the oppression, made it impossible for them to have swords and spears. So they're outnumbered, they're outgunned, things aren't looking good for them. In verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. Last week we saw that Israel was not accustomed to rallying around each other. Saul had to kill oxen and send out the pieces of the oxen in order to get the attention of Israel to come to a rally point. Now we find when they're being attacked by the enemy, their normal recourse is defeat. To go into fear and distress mode, to hide wherever possible. Caves, holes, pits, a stack of hay. They're, they're hiding, they're fearful. There's not people in their midst that are saying, wait a second, this is who God is. This is what God can do in this situation and in our hearts and, and in our lives. Instead, they were assuming defeat. In the New Testament, we've got truths that the Old Testament illustrates, that the Old Testament is a picture of. We don't have a physical enemy like the Philistines. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood a person. We wrestle against Satan, the principalities and the powers. And Satan, as the people of God, would want us to be in a position where we assume defeat. The enemy attacks, and what do we do? We go and hide. We run and hide. What does the scripture tell us to do? Draw near to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee for you. Stand strong in who Christ is and the power of, of his might. Engage the enemy. There's a real battle, isn't there? Satan's not kind of okay with us. We're an abomination to Satan. He wants to destroy our kids, wants to destroy our marriages, he wants to wreck our church. He wants to destroy our community. And what do we do? Do we run and hide? I think we see a lot of effects of that. And instead of running and hiding to engage with the Lord, to stand strong with the Lord, it's sad to see the people of God respond this way. Verse 7, Then some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. People are dropping off like flies. Now some are going outside of Israel. They're crossing over the Jordan River. They're going out of the promised land to the tribe of Gad. Gad was one of those tribes that didn't want to be in the promised land. So God said, you can be right outside the promised land. Modern day Jordan, they're crossing over the Jordan for safety, thinking the Philistines won't follow us there. Follow us there. The only soldiers that are still with Saul are physically trembling. Can you picture it? They're, they're following, just shaking in their boots. I'm sure a few of them probably wet their pants. Now, I don't know that for sure. That's my paraphrase. But you can see the fear that is over them. Verse 8, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Samuel had given these instructions 
Go to Gilgal, wait seven days. I will meet you there. Don't do anything until I meet you there. The seven days have come and went, and Samuel's still not there. Samuel's running late. The people are scattering. This is the worst nightmare for, for any leader. The people are, are running away. The situation's getting worse and worse by the moment. And what Saul's instructions wait? Waiting is one of the most difficult things in general. I don't particularly like to wait. Yesterday, took the, our kids up to Denver and we hung out with family. We were driving home in the afternoon, getting off the freeway at Woodman and I-25. You're familiar with that intersection, trying to go east on Woodman underneath the freeway. That is one of the longest lights in the city. I don't understand why Woodman just gets to keep going while you sit there and you sit there and you sit there. I'm gauging it in my mind. I'm thinking I'm far enough back, but I'm easily going to get this on the first green. Then there was a car that was two cars in front that missed it. The light turned green and they just hesitated. They were on a pleasant Saturday afternoon stroll and they did this. The, the, the delay, the classic delay, and then, hmm, it like two miles around the corner. And I threw my hands up. I'm like, oh my, you got to be kidding me. You're killing me here, right? Oh, you know? And then I realized, why am I so upset? Because I'm going to have to wait three more minutes. It's the end of the world, right? What am I going to do when I get home? I don't know, but at least I'm home. It's hard to wait. But it's even harder to wait when there's pressure. You feel like you have to do something. You feel like you've got to make a decision. The situation is not good. People are putting pressure on you. There's fear. There's, there's distress. So I'm going to do something. James chapter 1 tells us, let patience have its perfect work. Let patience run its course. Instead of rushing into action. Does that fit for you? Do you know that you're supposed to be waiting this morning? Has God given you instruction to wait? Maybe you're feeling the pressure to be married. You're single. You're dating someone. And deep down, you know it's not right. It's not quite right. Things aren't clicking. There isn't a mutual love for Jesus Christ. But in the back of your mind, if you're going, if we get married, I can change them. Good luck with that one. That's all I'm going to tell you on that. And if I don't marry them, there goes my chances at getting married. I'm getting a little bit older. I don't want to spend my life alone. You need to wait. You need to wait until you know in your heart that it's exactly right before the Lord. Maybe there's some type of decision that you're making in your job, in your profession, in your career. You feel pressured to make it, but you don't have the peace of the Lord. Why not wait? Why not wait until you have God's peace, that you have God's direction? What's wrong with waiting a few more days? What's wrong with praying it through just, just a little bit more? Here's something that I try to live by that has saved me some hurt. If someone's pressuring me a lot to make a decision right then, right that moment, it's automatically no. If they're saying, you've got to decide today by five, oh really, I got to decide today by five? Well, I got my answer. It's no, have a nice day. It saved me some real lemons when it's come to vehicles. I, I can't stand that. You go to a, a dealership to try to buy a vehicle and it's all these pressure points and tightening these screws and I'm just like, I'm done. 
I'm going to opt out. You know, I, I've got time. If you're not willing to give me time, then, then, then we're done. Don't let someone force you into a decision that's not godly, that isn't what the Lord has for your life. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring a burnt offering, a peace offering here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. This is a big deal, church. Why is it a big deal? Because God said in his word that only the priests were to offer the burnt offerings to the Lord. Jesus was the only one that was to be king and priest, to have all the power as a king. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, but also our high priest who intercedes for us. God separated these two for a purpose. He's only the sons of Aaron were consecrated to be priests. It's too much influence, too much power for one man. It was pointing to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Saul doesn't care. In this moment, we start to see his character flaws come out. I'm going to take this into my own hands, even if it means disobedience to God's word. Another king did this named Uzziah later on in the Old Testament. And Uzziah was a wonderful man of God. He walked with God. He was used by God. The stability of Israel returned. He had a strong army, fortified walls. And it said when he was strong, meaning when his heart became prideful, he went into the temple to burn incense. It was only the priest's job. 81 priests stand up against him. That's a lot of men saying, why don't you stop and think about this? They laid it out. God has said, you're not supposed to do this. And instead of listening, Uzziah was so prideful, he got furious. He got angry with these priests. And then all of a sudden, there was something on his forehead. It was white. It was flaky. It was leprosy. Interesting, the location that God put the leprosy. A place where you can't see. You can't see your own forehead. And the priests began to point out, you've got leprosy. Lepers couldn't be in the temple. They rushed him out of the temple. I believe it was symbolic of Uzziah's pride because with pride, a lot of times we can't see it. We can't see it in our own lives. Someone else has to point it out to us. Then when they point it out to us, we're like, no. And we get furious. We get, we get angry. Uzziah lived the rest of his life with leprosy, which meant he was isolated from the house of God. He couldn't go to the house of God and he couldn't be with people. He couldn't be with the community of Israel. That's what pride's gonna do to our lives. It isolates us from people. We're so opinionated, we've become a porcupine. We've got great points, but we're not very approachable. We're not fun to be around. We have no humility. There's no grace with our truth, and it isolates us from people. It isolates us from our fellowship with God. Saul makes this big decision here at this moment, Samuel's going to let him know that he's done as king. God is going to seek a replacement because of this disobedience of Saul. In verse 10, now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. As soon as he did it, as soon as he lit the burnt offering, here comes Samuel. Hey, what's going on, Saul? If he would have just waited 15 more minutes, literally, 15 minutes. What if you're 15 minutes from God working, from God providing, from God answering? 15 days, 15 months, you're close, just wait. And when we choose to walk in impatience, we miss out on God's best. Ever had this happen? You're hungry, it's getting close to dinner time, 
Dinner's an hour and a half away or so. Ah, oh, but I'm so hungry. The chips are right there. The salsa's in the fridge. I'll just have a few. That happened to me yesterday afternoon. I was so hungry. It was about four o'clock. Tortilla chips are my weakness. Homemade salsa in the fridge. I went for it. Before you knew it, I destroyed the whole bag. The bag was empty. The salsa was gone. Then it was getting close to dinner time. Amber's at the women's retreat, and I hear you're supposed to feed your kids. So it's like, come on, go, you know, let's, let's eat. Let's get. And they're like, Dad, well, aren't you going to eat? I'm not hungry. I already ate. I didn't eat a very good meal, did I? My snack ruined the meal. And how many times in impatience do we go for a snack and we miss out what God wants to provide, what God wants to do? He's got a good thing in mind. We just have to wait and wait upon the Lord. In verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Notice what Saul says. The people were scattered from me. Saul has made it about himself. He's concerned that people are not following him. He's not concerned with God's glory. He's not concerned with God's people. He's not worried that people are hiding in caves and jumping over the, the Jordan ri River because they're fearful. He's put the attention upon himself. Selfishness has taken root in the heart of Saul. Also, he's got a great way of blame shifting his own disobedience. Notice what he said in verse 11. Well, really, Samuel, is your fault. If you would have been on time, I would have not done the burnt offering. That's a lame excuse, isn't it? But a lot of times with our sin and our disobedience, we find a way to blame it on someone else. Adam, the first sinner. What did he do when God came to him in a similar manner? Adam, where are you? What have you done? Well, God, it was the woman you gave me. That's double blame shifting. That's bold, isn't it? Well, it's the woman's fault, plus it's your fault because you gave her to me. If you wouldn't have given me a wife, I wouldn't be in this, I wouldn't sin. And we do that, don't we? I mean, how many times in our lives are we going, you know, if my parents wouldn't have done this, I, I wouldn't be like this. And I'm sorry that you went through those things with your parents. Probably some really horrific things, but guess what? It doesn't release us with responsibility for our own sinful choices. You might be going, like Adam, it's my, my spouse. You know, if my spouse wouldn't push my buttons, I wouldn't get angry. My disobedience, it's her fault. God, it's the kids that you gave me. If they wouldn't act like this, then I, then I wouldn't do this. Well, I'd have a better work ethic if it wasn't for my boss. My boss doesn't appreciate me, doesn't respect me. So if I had a boss that was better, I'd be better. And see how easy it is to do what Saul did? The word of God's a mirror, the word of God's showing us. Contrast this with David. David wasn't perfect. He sinned greatly with Bathsheba, hid it for a year. God exposed him through Nathan the prophet. And when David came to repentance, there was no, well, it's Bathsheba. If she wouldn't have been taking a bath, then this would have never happened. God, why don't you talk to Bathsheba about this? He, he owned it. He confessed it before God. He agreed with God. Church, there's not going to be restoration in our relationship with God and God rebuilding our lives as long as we are blame shifting. 
we don't see Saul repenting and restoring his fellowship with God. He's going to continue in this path of compromise and come to more destruction. Verse 12, Then I said, The Philistines will not come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Saul tries to make his disobedience sound good. Philistines were going to come down. I, I hadn't offered this burnt offering. I felt compelled to do it because you weren't here. He could have prayed without violating the word of God and offering something that the priests were commanded to do. Let's be careful. We can put a nice little label on our disobedience, can't we? Well, I felt compelled. How many times have you been tempted to say or heard people say or said it yourself, well, God wants me to be happy. And you've attached that to a sinful action. Well, think that through a little bit. Sin never leads to happiness. It always leads to destruction. God wants us to be holy, not necessarily happy. An abundant life comes out of holiness. So that's not God. If I'm trying to say that God is leading me to do something sinful, that's just twisted, isn't it? That's just messed up. I'm just trying to feel better about my own disobedience. And Saul's doing the same thing. Well, I just felt compelled to do this because the pressure was so great. I, I wanted to offer this, this burnt offering. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Saul calls it as it is. Or excuse me, Samuel calls it as it is. He says, you have acted foolishly. Disobedience is foolishness. We don't realize it, but we'll always be exposed and there'll always be a high price for sin. Sometimes I think that God is trying to get everybody's attention all at once. And this was one of those weeks. And you're saying, really? Yeah, globally, across the whole world, I think God was trying to get people's attention. Maybe you followed the story. There's a website called Ashley Madison. Came out eight years ago from Canada. Leave it to the Canadians. But... This was the website. It was designed for married people to come up with profiles to commit adultery. That was the whole intent of it. And they justified it saying this is inside of human behavior, so we're just providing an avenue for what people already do. So this website's been going on for eight years. Well, it got hacked this week. And everybody's name that had signed up for a profile went public. Some computer hacker, and I'm wondering, did their spouse cheat on them through Ashley Madison, so they said, I'm going to go in there and hack this? I don't know. That's completely speculation. But they went in and hacked it, and now 38 million people, their names went public this week. Think about that. 38 million profiles on this website. Now, some of them may be fake, but the majority of them are real. And what's the spiritual truth behind that? You can't hide. Your sin will find you out. Jesus said what you did in secret will be made known publicly. And God's saying, look, sin is foolishness. Sin brings destruction. There's no private area of your life. And what's tragic about this is a lot of married folks found out this week that their spouse has been being unfaithful to them through this list being published and suicides resulted over it. This is a huge part of our culture and our society. And God's working in our hearts and our lives and thinking, man, can you just keep going down this road? Are you gonna get away with it? Oh, it's just a burnt offering. 
I'm sure there was even some of those couples that engaged in adultery that put on their profiles about their commitment to Christ and got together and prayed together, got together and went, went to church together and felt good about it because God wanted them to be happy. And God's always saying, man, sin is foolishness. And in any area of our lives this morning, if God's speaking to you and challenging you, walk in repentance, walk in holiness. That's where abundant life comes from. Notice what God wanted to do for Saul. For now the Lord would have established her kingdom over Israel forever. It would have stayed in Saul's family, leading up to Christ forever. The king of Israel forever. Who's the fulfillment of that? Jesus Christ, which is going to come through the line of David because of Saul's compromise. Saul gives up on what God wants to do. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. God's already moving on. God's already moving forward. God's looking for Saul's replacement. Saul gets the news, you're not gonna be king anymore because of this decision that he made. What's interesting is this is David. We know this to be David. And David wasn't perfect. I don't want you to think that we're going to be perfect. But when we do sin, we don't want the Saul response. We want the David response, as we've talked about. How come David responded the way that he did? Because he cared about his relationship with God. He cared about the things that God cares about. Church, God's still looking for men and women that are after his heart. That that's what they long for. That's what they desire. To raise up to lead his people, to serve his people. Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul just moves on with activities, moves on with the pressing need, doesn't seem to hit him, doesn't seem to phase him. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. The raiders came out from the camp of Philistines in three companies, it's reduced down to 600 men with Saul. This mass multitude's breaking up in three companies to surround Saul. One company turned onto the road to Orpha, to the land of Shula. Another company turned to the road of Beth Haran. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. This is an effective means of oppression. Remember, Old Testament pictures of New Testament truths. We have an enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy us. How is he going to destroy us? Same way as the Philistines, by eliminating the word of God in our lives. Only two swords in Israel because there's no blacksmiths. And what are we seeing amongst the people of God? There's a lack of the word of God. And when there's the lack of the word of God in our lives, we're very susceptible to the defeat of the enemy. We've got the great privilege of studying God's word. I hope that all of you have one of these, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that you own your own copy. If you don't, we'd love to give you some at the door. Pick it up and take it home with you. And I love the technology that we have. I don't think it is always a bad thing. Have the word of God on your phone. 
Your phone's normally always with you and getting your oil changed, read the word. Your phone's with you, you've got a lunch break, take a walk, read the word. It's wonderful. I take advantage of it. But I also think you should have a physical one of these. One of these that you read, that you study, that you underline, things God's showing you, so that you can go back to places of scripture and go, I don't really remember that section of scripture, but I remember where I underlined and where, where I wrote it and where, where I put it. More than the practical uses, it's the very real importance of being in God's word. And without being in God's word, there's no possible way for victory. This is how we gain the knowledge of God. This is how when the enemy comes against us, when we're tempted, we stand on the word of God. Two people in all of Israel have a sword. How about amongst the people of God? How active is the word of God? I pray that it's powerful, that it's living and active in our lives. We be consistent in the word of God. Can we be honest this morning? Let's just be honest with each other. We don't stand a chance spiritually if this is the only time in our week that we're in the word of God. Praise the Lord that we're here. Praise the Lord that we're studying the word of God. But we need to be in the word of God much more than this. And you're saying, well, I've tried to read the word and I don't understand it. Well, let me try to give you a few helpful hints. One is don't start with the book of Leviticus. That's going to be real difficult. You know, a lot of times people start in Genesis. They get through Genesis. They get through Exodus. And they're like, Leviticus, I'm completely lost. A suggestion, start with the book of Mark. And a lot of people say, well, why start with the book of Mark? Every other pastor I've always heard says start with the book of John. That would be fine too. But this is why I say Mark. Did you know that John was written towards Jews, a Jewish audience that understood the Old Testament? Where the gospel of Mark was written to Gentiles. We're Gentiles, we're non-Jewish. A lot of us don't have the background in the Old Testament. And the book of Mark is the most clear and succinct description of the life of Jesus. It's 16 short chapters and it's action-packed. You'll find over and over in the Gospel of Mark the word immediately. You know, we found even in presenting videos about what things are going on in the church, I'm always telling the guys, don't make it too long. Because in our culture, we're lost in four or five minutes. If we're watching a video for four or five minutes, we're like, on to the next thing. You know, it's like, keep it at two minutes. If we want to have an effective video, keep it at, keep it at two minutes. Well, the Gospel of Mark is action-packed. I would encourage you, if you're just starting with reading the Word, or it's been a while, commit to read the Gospel of Mark and read chapter 1, then chapter 2. Come at it with some anticipation. This is how. Get a pencil, get a pen, get ready to underline. Pray that God would show you something. Before you start, Holy Spirit, would you teach me and show me something about yourself? You might not understand all of it, but there may be one verse that stands out. Underline that verse. Maybe put a question mark by some, some verses. Come talk with a pastor after service. But every time there's a revival amongst the people of God, there's a returning to the word of God. And we're at a real crossroads in our culture. In the next 20, 30 years, 40 years, we're either gonna find a revival with the word of God or we're gonna be living in a culture that has no idea who Jesus Christ is, has no idea what a Bible is. They've never even seen one before. That's where Europe is currently. They're completely removed from Christ and the things of God. So we're at this place of saying, we've gotta engage. We can't put our head in a hole and we can't allow our sword to be taken from us. 
And the enemy would love that to take place in our lives. So verse 20, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshare, which is two thirds of a shekel weight, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. They're going to go about this battle with farming tools, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. Only two men have swords. Read ahead for chapter 14. I love it. You'll see what Jonathan chooses to do with his sword. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Stay with me for just a few more moments. I want to try to allow the Lord to bring application in our lives. Life lessons from Saul, there'll be more to come. But for this week, what are a few of the life lessons? The first is, don't make it about you. Do not make it about you. It's so tempting for us to do this. Selfishness runs deep in our sinful nature, and Saul made leading the people of God about himself. They're scattered from me instead of being caught up with God's glory and being a servant of God's people. We can take every blessing in our lives, every good thing in our lives, and twist it and make it about ourselves. Or we think that our marriage is just about us and making us feel good instead of our marriage exists to reflect God's glory. We can take our friendships and make it about ourselves. It's all about me and fulfilling this need in my life instead of glorifying God and seeking to be a servant and blessing them. We can take even the church, the community of believers that we're in, and instead of seeing that we've been knit together for God's glory to build one another up, it's all about me. Somehow we've, we've turned it back towards, towards ourselves, And it's a dangerous slope. When we look at the life of Saul, it's going to go from bad to worse, from bad to worse, to bad to worse, and it's contrary to the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come to be served. He came to serve. I think one of the most depressing things about life is getting focused on ourselves. You want to be depressed? Focus on yourself. It'll work every single time. Focus on God's glory. Focus on others. Go find a person that's in a worse situation than you today and serve them. And serve them. Man, I don't have it so bad. I have a lot to be thankful for. Don't make it about you. Make it about Christ and his glory. Don't make a decision out of fear and pressure. God's word's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We're all human. We're all just like Saul. We feel the pressure. Are you feeling the pressure this morning? Don't rush into a decision. Wait. Wait for God's best. Wait for God's answer. Wait for God's provision. What if Saul would have stopped, prayed, thought, what does God's word say, and asked for some counsel before he did this burnt offering? If he would have turned to anybody that was around him at this point saying, guys, Samuel's not here. What do you think? Should I do this burnt offering thing? They would have all said, no, don't do it. What are you thinking? That's going to bring destruction. Take some time to get some godly counsel. Get, get some advice. Don't be pressured into a decision. This one's really important. Don't spiritualize disobedience. Don't spiritualize disobedience. We can completely let ourselves off of the hook by putting some type of label 
on our sin and disobedience. Well, I'm just passive. I'm just laid back. That's the way God made me. And we give ourselves freedom to then not lead in the areas that God wants us to. Not lead in our families and in our friendships and disciple our kids and discipline our kids. Well, I'm just laid back. Well, God calls us to disciple and discipline our kids, regardless of what your personality's like. Well, I'm just Irish, and haven't you found out that the Irish, they're the fighting Irish, and that's what we do as a family, and it's worked pretty effectively, and didn't Jesus get angry sometimes? I'm just going to kind of roll with this. And we put this tag on there, and we give ourselves freedom to be able to continue in it. I have the right to be hurt. I have the right to be bitter. I don't need to forgive. If you knew what they had done to me, you'd be bitter as well. Well, God tells us to forgive because God has freely forgiven us. And all of a sudden, it starts to strip things away. We don't want to look at it. That's why we put the smoke screen up. That's why we blame shift. That's why we spiritualize it. And it keeps us from growing the way that the Lord would intend. And then lastly, church, don't forfeit your sword. Do not forfeit your sword. You've got the word of God. Do you know how blessed we are? We have access to the word of God. Some people groups still don't have the word of God in their language. Many throughout the world don't know how to read. You may not know how to read. If that's, if that's true, please call the church office. We'll do everything possible to help you learn how to read so you can learn the, the word of God. But most of you, you know how to read. You have a Bible, you have access to a Bible, you have the ability to be able to read it. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And how does Satan get us to forfeit our sword? He's really subtle. Just makes us really busy, doesn't he? So we're running around here, we're running around there. Happens to all of us, we're exhausted. Hit the snooze button. Every intention to spend time in God's word. No, we don't stand a chance without it. Want a fellowship with God. No, we're saved by grace. Tired, wore out. A little bit more sleep. It's amazing what God can do with 15 minutes. It's amazing. Oh, I'm so tired. I normally end my day with reading the word, but I'm just exhausted. I'm, man, and God gives us beloved sleep. I, man, get, get your rest but don't allow busyness to keep you from the word of God. That's when we know we're in a really spiritual battle. It's so easy for me to find 15 minutes on ESPN. ESPN.com, bam, I'm there. I'm reading about the football season. Easy, every time. Difficult to get in the word of God. Busyness a lot of times robs us from our sword. Don't forfeit your sword. Pick up your sword and go for it. Would you pray with me? Father, we just ask that you'd bring fruit in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's humbling to see ourselves in the life of Saul. So much destruction, so much pain. So quickly, Lord, he chose to walk in disobedience. Would you protect us from pride? Would you protect us from selfishness? Would you allow your word to be alive in our hearts? God, we pray for our church and for Colorado Springs. Lord, would you awaken us to the word of God, not out of legalism, Lord, but out of love, or would you give us a greater hunger for your word and ability to understand it, to sink our lives into it? Or would you continue to bless the study in the weeks to come as we go through 1 Samuel? In Jesus' name, amen.